And I'm so excited to be with you. We're going to be in John 15, verses 1 through 8. You can go ahead and turn there if you'd like. We'll also have it on the screen for you. But uh, we've known uh, Caleb and Brooke for a long time now. I'm going to bend down and tie my shoe that just got untied. But uh, we've known them for a long time now and had the privilege of going to school with Caleb. Um, And he was a better student than I was. And he was also a better athlete than I was. So I'm not sure why he called me today. Other than to say we, we sparked a friendship that's, that's lasted over time and, and space. And thank goodness for uh, the way that the Lord does that. He, he binds people together even uh, in faraway places. And uh, such, a, such an honor to fill uh, this pulpit today and be with you guys. We recently spoke, my wife and I, with an old pastor and... He told us that the Christian life is more about being than doing. And this sounds very good. Sounds like something you might put on a coffee mug. As you know, the problem with saying that to sinners who are very fond of working for their own salvation is that it's easy to hear and say, oh, yes, that's good, but now what do I need to do to be better at being And we'll read the whole passage momentarily. But I want you to look at Jesus' words in John 15, 8. He says this, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Now, this word, prove to be, it could be translated, I think maybe a better translation there would be to become my disciples. So it's kind of this idea Jesus is portraying of becoming what you already are. That you are both doing and becoming something simultaneously. But the emphasis here is on what you are becoming. Because the goal here is being his disciple. And I know for us this morning who are gathered here, if the Holy Spirit resides in you, then something about that rings true in your spirit, that you want to reach the end of your days and have Jesus look you in the face and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You are my disciple. You have made it. You are here with me. And in lieu of that, I want us to look at John 15, verses 1 through 8, in these words, and ask ourselves the question of what what does this look like for us to abide in Christ? What does it look like to become his disciple? Is it about the fruit we're producing? Is it about some action that we're taking? And if it's not, if it's just about being or becoming, then how do we do that? What would that look like in our life? And so let's read the whole passage here together, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll talk it through together. It says in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. 
remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be or become my disciples. Now I want to walk through just a few things that we can notice about this passage this morning, focusing on the idea of abiding in Christ. When Jesus gives us this plea, he tells us remain is the word that is used here in my version. Your version may say abide or something similar or rest even, depending on what you're looking at. But this word remain or abide, what is this plea from Christ, this invitation, if you will, for him to say to us, hey, remain in me or to abide in me? Well, it's this, this concept that we've already begun to discuss of, of resting over doing, of, of abiding over activity, of being or becoming over performance or accomplishment. And Jesus would invite all of us into this. There's some of us in this room this morning that we find this more difficult than others. There are some of us, if we were to admit it, if we were to take a poll and go around, that it would be difficult for us to live a life without a checklist, without a measurement of sorts to God whether or not we are doing well. And that could be as simple as, did you get everything on the list at the grocery store? Which I've certainly been guilty of coming home without. Or, maybe it's something even more spiritual than that. Maybe it's, did I read my Bible today? Did I pray for a certain amount of time today? What did I listen to today? Did I accomplish enough for Christ today? And Jesus is inviting us into a different kind of way of living. He's inviting us into a restful, becoming kind of life where he does the work and we rest in it. So let's look at first the meaning of abiding, the meaning of it. Look in verse 4, or really even before that in verse 2. It says this, Every branch in me that does not produce fruit he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit. The emphasis there is on God who is doing the pruning. Look down again in verse 4. He says, remain in me, so abide in me and I in you. But what does that look like? What does it mean? Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. So here's where he has now asserted that remaining or abiding supersedes the production. 
He's made that clear in verse 4, that somehow we must first learn to remain or abide or be, rest, become, before we can think about producing anything in us. And in fact, again, the emphasis that he is the one who is doing the pruning and therefore allowing for the production. That God himself, as the true gardener, is the one who does this. I, we li- we've lived in Brandon, Mississippi for about seven, almost eight years coming up. And we moved into a house a few years back that had grapevines growing up in the back. And I thought to myself, this is my time. This is my moment. Uh, I didn't have to plant these, uh, so I can't possibly ruin them. Uh, and, and I did. You know, a, a hand up, full confession this morning, I, I did. I, I have not found a plant yet that I could not ruin in some way. Um, I wish that I was better at it. Uh, whatever the opposite of green thumb is, that's what I have. Uh, I, I even, I do all the Googling. I look up all the videos I try to do it at the right time, the right season. I try to get the, or the right soil and the right fertilizer and all that kind of stuff. I'm telling you those, we had one grape in, in, a, in a four or five year span and it was not good. Uh, I, I tried it, it wasn't good. But here we're invited by the master gardener to be a part of the true vine where he does all the work where he does the pruning. In fact, if you were to look over in verse 16, it's not up there on the screen, but it says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit, that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Jesus is even here pointing out this distinction that this is a work that began from the Father, to invite you into life in his son, Jesus. And now, anything that is produced from that, he is the one who is making it happen. And so the meaning of this is a relinquishment. The meaning of abiding looks like a relinquishment of primary responsibility to God for the working out of our salvation. It's a a relinquishment of the primary responsibility of the working out of our salvation, putting the emphasis not in what we can accomplish, but what God has already accomplished, and not just that, what he will continue to accomplish in us. And this, brothers and sisters, should be relieving to you this morning. The primary way in which this should make you feel, and I think that putting in a little context how Jesus wanted the disciples to feel as they're listening to this is relief of a heavy burden that they were not built to bear. Here he is in this upper room with them the night before he was crucified, and they are feeling the weight of the realization that he is about to leave them, he just told them, that he is about to depart and go away. And they are feeling that weight come crashing down on them. What are we going to do now? And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. That's not for you to bear. I'll still bear that. It will look different. It will look like the Holy Spirit inside of you. It will look like you asking the Father in my name. But it will still be me. I'm not asking you to take that burden on yourself. 
Anybody in here been skydiving? I know that's a rare event, but no one, no takers? A couple? Together? Amen. You know? Good for y'all. That's awesome. Um, I used to think, you know, when you're, when you're a young man, I feel like especially, and people always throw out those hypotheticals, like, would you ever, you know, I always felt like as a young man, I always say yes to anything. And then I grew older, and I thought more and more about skydiving, and I thought, no, I don't think I would actually do that, jump out of a plane and plummet. It just doesn't feel like something I would do. Um, and, I mean, because you're, you're talking about somebody, as I grew older, I would go to the, like, the water park. I'd get to the tall slide. You know the one. And the one that goes straight down that you know, like, it doesn't make sense maybe in physics. I wasn't ever good at that. But, like, you just know that your feet are going to catch on the water slide. And you're going to go like this. And you're going you're gonna to go straight head first. At least that's what goes through my brain. Now you're like, thanks for putting that in my my head. Now we bear this burden together. But I, I, knowing that about myself, I, I just thought, you know, I'm not going to do skydiving. That's not, that's not for me. But then, I didn't know this. Maybe some of you don't either. That's why only two of you have been. But it, I, I didn't realize this, but the first, like, four or five times you go skydiving, they don't let you go alone. They put you with an instructor, and in fact, it's not just like he's up there with you, you know, like saluting you from across the sky. He's like literally attached to you. You're like strapped in with him. And I thought, you know what? I think I could do that. Like, because first of all, if I got up there and I wasn't feeling it, you know, he's jumping. So, <laughs> it, it, like, I'm, I'm getting, I'm going out the door whether or not I like it at that point, you know, so I might as well pretend to be real manly and just like, yeah, of course I want to be here. Don't you? Um, but when I realized that all that I had to do, that literally on this, on this, on these first few excursions, like, you jump out and all, he's doing everything. You're just mimicking him. Right? He puts his arms out, you put your arms out, he puts his legs out, he does a certain way, you do the same. All you're doing is you pull the chute, right? And then people get home and they tell, you know, the brave story about the, how they jumped out, you know, they skydived, you know, whatever. You didn't skydive. That guy did. You were just there. But as there was for me in this realization, a relief that came over me in the, this thought, okay, maybe I could do that. For the weary believer this morning, and you've been trying to honor the Lord. You've been trying to pursue Christ. Can I just offer you a, a measure of hope this morning to say to your weariness that you don't have to do it alone. In fact, you don't really have to do it. You have to be with him. He's inviting you in to that work, that you in, be with him and then he does it for you. So that's the, the meaning of it. That's how it feels, this, this distinction between doing, being, or becoming. What is the rhythm of it? What would that actually functionally look like in our life? My wife always reminds me that I have to, I have to get practical 
at some level with, with things because she's real, she's real practical, and so she helps me remember this. But here's, here's would be more of the practical, what does that look like day to day for me? What is the rhythm of it? Well, look in verse 3. It says, you were already clean because, and notice what it's because of. How is it that we were cleansed? How is it that we came into this process of growth that God has invited us into? He says, because of the word I have spoken to you. Over in verse 10 and 11, um, it also says, if you keep my commands, and I have told you these things. Here Jesus is emphasizing the words that he has spoken to them. There's a rhythm of listening. The first call for a believer in Christ to abide or remain in Jesus is to remain by listening to his words. Notice that listening, which some of us are better at than others, amen? Listening is a very passive thing, right? It's a verb of absorption. We're, something is happening and we are accepting it, receiving it. It's not an active thing, although it's good to be an active listener and ask questions when your wife is telling you all about that market she went to, but I'm just saying that mostly listening is a passive thing. You're receiving something, and so we receive the word of Christ. We listen to the gospel and we then listen to it every day. And, in fact, this is helpful for me to just make this connection. That first verse that we read in verse 8, when it says, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit. You know, that sounds like, man, that's something i got to do. And so how, how does that connect to with what we're talking about this morning? Well, this glorifying work, notice what Jesus says later, I'll read it to you, it won't be up there on the screen, but in, if you were to look over in chapter 16, verse 13, he says this, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. So all of this is the Holy Spirit speaking to you, you listening, and then it says this, he will glorify me. Now this is a twist from verse 8 in chapter 15. Right? In chapter 15, verse 8, it looks like it is us doing the producing that makes God be glorified. But Jesus is later clarifying, no, it is the Holy Spirit who by speaking the words to you, he will glorify you. How does he do it? Because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. That is how God is glorified. This production that happens begins with us as a listener to the voice of God, listening to God's Word. And so we begin with listening, and then we also remember. Look in verse 7 of chapter 15. It says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. Good news, you don't even have to rely on yourself to remember the words that you're listening to. The Holy Spirit will remind you of these things. And so even in this, we are primarily, mostly, 
a passive participant. We are a receiver of these things. Why? Because earlier in chapter 14, Jesus has already promised that the counselor, the Holy Spirit, would come and he would remind you of his words. So when we aren't sure if the voice we're hearing is, is God or us, I know I have that. I'm sitting here reading or I'm praying and I'm thinking about something that I have on my mind. Is this the Lord speaking to me? Is this me, Carter, making this up? What is this? When we're in this dilemma, we run to God's words to see, does this line up with God's character revealed to us in Christ? We're learning our Father's voice by these two rhythms of listening and then remembering, listening and then remembering and trusting the Holy Spirit that he is bringing to mind the true words of Christ. And when we are uncertain, we then open our Bible and we say, Lord, show me. It does this line up with your character. Because our goal there is still just this receiving from the Lord. And do you know what I have come to know and believe full-heartedly that God loves when we do this, when we seek to listen to his voice. If you think an earthly father takes great joy when they speak to their infant child and they see that child strain their neck to turn and look for his face, how much more so is your father in heaven pleased with you, pleased with you, when you are straining your neck to what? To do for him? To perform for him? No, just to listen to his voice. That's what he wants. That's what he hopes. That's what he takes pleasure in when he sees his children turning to hear the voice of their father. And so we listen and we remember and then we ask Again, in verse 7, so if this is happening, we've, we hear the words, the words are remaining in us, then what does Jesus command and give to us as a gift? He says, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. So we ask for help, for guidance. In chapter 16, we ask for wisdom over sin, righteousness, and judgment, all things from the Holy Spirit. And again, Brothers and sisters, these are all things that we then are receiving still. We are still then in the position of the one who is receiving, not the one who is doing, not the one who is giving to God, but rather the one who is receiving from him. And so what is then, if this is the rhythm of it, what is the goal of it? What is the goal of abiding? We've already mentioned in one way, that the ultimate goal is to become a disciple of Christ, to become what we've already been called in Jesus' name. But what would that look like as an end result in our life? Knowing that it is ultimately God's work to produce this fruit in us, I think that this is all about this idea of remaining and abiding, resting, being, becoming, this is all about positioning. Not about performance, but it is about positioning. We stay connected to the vine. It just says in verse 4 again, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains where? 
So the way in which we produce fruit, according to Jesus in this passage and even in this illustration, is by a location, right? Not a specific activity per se, but where they are. They are connected to the vine. And if that branch is connected to the vine, then the fruit will come. And so it is a measure of where they are. It is a measure of how they are positioned. And so like a straw, if you were to take one, you can imagine it right here in my hand. If you were to take a straw and you were to place it underneath a faucet that was running water, and I was to hold it sideways out like this, how much water is getting into that straw? Not much, if any. But if I were to simply turn the straw up and down, how much water is now coming through? Almost all of it. It's running through there. And so the simple turn of the positioning of that straw allows for the water to come straight through. Now that straw can never become the water. It can never become the source that is pouring through it. But it can position itself in such a way that that water pours out towards other people and fills their life. And so we build habits in our lives that are going to encourage this margin for this rhythm of listening, remembering, and asking, not as a duty to produce the fruit within ourselves, but to position ourselves before the great gardener and to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to be pruned each day, to say, Lord, Holy Spirit, each morning, would you position my heart to receive from you and fill me up today from something that I cannot create, something that I cannot do, but Lord, you can do in me. And so, yes, of course, we read God's word. We wake up in the morning and we read God's word. We write down key things to remember and to memorize. We spend time with God in prayer. But these things then cease to become Sunday school answers or checklist items for your day. But instead, with this mentality, these activities become less of a religious checklist because we know that it does not produce the fruit ultimately, but rather God produces the fruit and it becomes a way for us to simply commune and be with, reside with, remain with the God who is the producer of that fruit. We're positioning ourselves. And I don't know about you, but I need this to position myself that way every day. I, I rarely, I rarely, and maybe this is too honest for you, but I rarely wake up with just this awe in my heart of, man, God, I am so glad to be alive, and this is such a good day today. I know there are people who have a cheerful spirit like that, and praise God for you. I have to fight for that. I wake up not wanting to be awake. This is my first thought, is I wish I wasn't. Like, that's, that's normally how I enter into the world. I don't enter in with, Lord, thank you for restoring my breath. You know, like, I don't, I don't do that. And so I need this. I need to hit my knees as a physical 
me touching the pages, me hitting my knees, me opening the Bible, me seeing words. That is a physical moment and reminder for me I need this to position my heart because my heart didn't wake up this way. That old man still rages in there and he needs to die today. And so it becomes a way for us to position ourselves to be with the Lord. And here's what I do know. The more we track in that rhythm, the more we feel the pleasure of the Father that we spoke of earlier. The sweeter it becomes. Not as a way to say, I did this, do you approve? But rather a, I want to be with you, do you want me to be with you? Brothers and sisters, the Lord's answer to that is always yes. And so what is the problem with this and the hope in it? And I did these two together because I don't want to just let you linger on the problem too long. I'm sure there might be many, but one of them And the problem with the entirety of the Christian life is that it is just so daily. All us husbands would be good at marriage if it was a once a year dinner date and an anniversary gift. Would we not? I didn't get enough amens from the husbands. Don't leave me up here. Don't do that to me. I know I'm not alone in that. How dare you. No, but much like many of us Christians would be good at being Sunday believers or Easter or Christmas believers, we'd be good at that. If it was a once a week kind of, yeah, I'm going to re-up for this week. The problem with the Christian life is that it's every day. It's repeated. And we as people in this fallen sinful world struggle with the monotony of abiding in Christ. It's so monotonous. It's so repetitive. We don't struggle to listen. We struggle to listen every day. We don't struggle to remember. We struggle to remember when temptation hits. And you know, one thing I've noticed about children and especially my own, I'm sure you have your own experiences with this, is that children, they never grow tired of doing things over and 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 over. They never grow tired of that, right? It doesn't matter how many times I lift them up on my legs laying on the living room floor and fly them like an airplane. They always want to do it again. Our littlest one, he, his name is Jude. He calls himself Jude Dude. Uh, And he says, he runs around the house because he's the fourth, always wanting his turn at things. And so, but he doesn't call it a turn, he calls it a try. So he says, Jude dudes try, Jude dudes try, and it becomes all the more anxious the longer it goes. Jude dudes try, you know, he's just in fits by the time his turn finally comes around. But it doesn't matter how many times Jude dude gets a try, he always wants one more. Uh, Because children are like that. They have the exhilaration of repetition. And when we get older, we grow tired of this. And we even grow tired of it in our Christian walk. And you may code it in something different, like, well, I don't want to bother the Lord with that again. And you may say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not 
consciously say this, but subconsciously say, well, I put the armor of God on yesterday. Do I really have to do it all over? I already know how I'm going to be tempted. We grow weary of walking in it every single day. But the good news is, that's the problem with it, but the hope is this, that it's we who grow tired of repetition and not the Lord. G.K. Chesterton, the author, about the same time as C.S. Lewis, he said it like this, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. You know, it is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all the daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. You know, I tell my kids, it is your job as a son or daughter of obedience to remember mine and your mother's instructions. I tell them that all the time. If they were sitting in here, I could start that sentence and they would finish it. But you know what? Something I have to repeat to myself, it's also my job as a good father to always be willing to remind them. So yes, it's their job to remember, but it's my job as a father, a good one, to be willing to get down face to face and say, I'll tell you one more time. I'll tell you again. It's okay that you forgot. I've forgotten a lot in my life. It's okay that you disobeyed, not because there's not consequences, but because we all do. And I want to sit with you again, and I want to go over my instructions again, because I want to be with you. And we're going to continue to be in this relationship, even though you may have forgotten something that I have instructed. And I, Lord willing, will always be willing to tell them again, because I believe that this is mirroring to how our Father treats us. We do not abide well. We like to do. We like to have our own plan. We do not succeed often in resting in Christ. But in our frailty, God is abundantly willing to sit with us in our doubts and our weakness. Just like the Lord knelt in front of prideful Peter earlier this night that we are reading and said, let me wash your feet. And so the Lord would speak to your heart this morning and say, let go of your doing. Let go of your accomplishments. Let go of your failures even. And let me clean you. Let me prune you. Let me do this so that you might grow in me. He's inviting you afresh into that intimate walk with him, to be with him, always willing to kneel down where you are and say, I'll tell you again. It's okay. You can come to me. Let's talk.
And so this morning, I don't know where you are. I don't know what temptation has come your way already today. I don't know where your mind is or where your heart's burdens are, but I know this, Jesus is ready to lift them. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the relationship that I speak of with Jesus Christ, you don't know what that means when we read that verse that said you are cleaned because of the word that he has spoken. You've never had that call on your life from Christ to come and follow him and be cleansed from all your sins and wrongdoing and to enter into a relationship with him. You've never had that moment where you have surrendered your life for the first time, where you have positioned yourself and said, Lord, I surrender my life to you. And there is no day like today. And the Lord is ready and willing to receive you and to say to you, all is forgiven, child, come home. 